Analytics Podcast. I am Alan Cavana of Fox Sports, joined by David Smith of MotorsportsAnalytics.com. Coming up on this episode, quick thoughts on the schedule announcement, a sobering look at Jimmy Johnson and why his biggest foe may just be Father Time, an analysis of what makes Brad Keselowski stand out among his peers, and our Texas preview on what you need to look at when you envision how this race plays out. But first, David, of course, we like to start with some fun. This is episode 10, the Ricky Rudd edition of Positive Regression. Uh, David, when I, when I think of the 10 car, I think of the Tide Ride. And the Tide Ride to me, I know some people say Daryl Waltrip, but the Tide Ride to me was always Ricky Rudd. Whether it was the 5 car or, in this case, the 10 car, I think of Ricky Rudd. You got to love Dayglow Orange, right? I mean, who, who doesn't? And that's, that's another car that catches the eye. Um, Ricky Rudd. To me, what a an interesting career. He was actually the driver of the Richard Childress Racing number three before Dale Earnhardt. And RCR essentially traded Rudd to Bud Moore for Earnhardt. And we know how that worked out for RCR. But uh, Bud Moore, uh, considering that he, he no longer had this transcendent talent behind the wheel, arguably got better with Rudd in his car. In the two years Earnhardt drove for Bud Moore, he won three times across two seasons, uh, scoring seven and nine top five finishes in 1982 and 1983, respectively. Rudd joined the team in 1984, and in the three seasons that followed, he earned 13, 11, and 10 top five finishes in each of those seasons, five wins across that span, Bud Moore actually made out okay in that swap. If you're going to uh, have a trade involving um, uh, an awesome talent like Earnhardt, you're always going to get uh, cents back on the dollar. But, I mean, that, this part's more or less forgotten because of the supernova that is Dale Earnhardt emerged at the same time. But Rudd actually made that swap okay. And Alan, as for his time in the 10 car, a missed connection of sorts. He left Hendrick Motorsports after the 1993 season to start Rudd Performance Motorsports, and I admire his entrepreneurial spirit, but in this case, it might have been ill-timed. We know what happened in 1994. Jeff Gordon won the Coca-Cola 600 and the Brickyard 400. Gordon and Ray Evernham were the tide lifting all boats at Hendrick. One of the beneficiaries was Terry Labonte, who replaced Ricky Rudd in the Hendrick 5 car. And that number five car won the series championship in 1996. Alan, do you care to guess how old Ricky Rudd was during that 1996 season? Please be 39. Please be 39. Oh, he was 39. All right. Bummer (laughs) that we, we didn't get to see Rudd at his peak driving the number five car at its peak. Uh, that could have been it for Rudd. That could have been the championship if his timing was a little more fortuitous. Uh, turns out he abandoned Hendrick at the wrong time, but if he hadn't, we wouldn't have had that beautiful number 10 car. No, and that's what I remember about Ricky Rudd. He he was a car owner, and he won the Brickyard as a car owner, something we had to wait, and I think, uh, I don't know if we've seen again. I don't think Tony Stewart did it in, the, in one of his cars, but that just always stuck out to me, that he won the Brickyard as a car owner. An interesting career, David. He had 23 wins, but never more than two in a season. So that's a long career to have and still maintain some level of relevance, some level of success. And, you know, you just think about him and his attitude and those late fights with, uh, I think, Kevin Harvick, and he had that old soundbite, the yap-yap mouth, and 
not afraid to go at it. And there's the, the whole legend of him taping his eyes open and all that stuff. That's what I think about when I think about Ricky Rudd. I, I don't know if, if I'll put you on the spot here, but Ricky Rudd, Hall of Famer. I mean, no championships, 23 wins, a big personality, certainly, but Hall of Famer? Well, maybe. I mean, that depends on in what class he gets inducted. Uh, I can see it being one of the later classes, but I don't know that he's an immediate uh, induction. Also, it depends on the voting, uh, uh, the voting populace as is. Rudd meant so much to uh, drivers of a certain age in the state of Virginia. It's actually, it's interesting. It, it's not, it's not the Burtons. It's not the Sadlers. Uh, there's uh, um, some some hero worship of sorts with Tommy Ellis, famous short tracker and a, and a uh, Bush Grand National driver, and Ricky Rudd from Chesapeake. Um, he's captured the imagination of a generation of Virginia racers. They hold him in high regard. He's a Hall of Famer in their eyes for sure. Well, there you go. Everything you wanted to know plus more about Ricky Rudd uh, on episode 10 of Positive Regression. Let's get to it. The big news this week, uh, at least on the news side of things, was the schedule shakeup for 2020. Same tracks, you know, that's what NASCAR had to work with. They couldn't add or subtract uh, tracks or venues, but they they shook it up. And David, we got a new looking playoff. We have some new looking regular season. Uh, You're a stats guy, an analyst. Does the schedule change do much for you? Uh, no, we go to all the same places. It's not, it's not that much of a change. Just the, the order is different. And maybe if you're a, a, a stickler for order and consistency, may, maybe you can be in an uproar about this, but I, I'm, I'm not sure that some of the over the top reactions have been warranted. I, I'm not somebody that gets jazzed about the, the championship battle uh, or the, or the playoffs. I just, I just kind of show up and, and watch racing and, and take from it a good time. In this instance, uh, nothing is much different. I don't know that teams would game plan differently than they already have. Maybe there's a little bit more focus going forward on Phoenix for teams that get very deep into the playoffs as opposed to Homestead. But that's about it. I, I don't. I don't see any any reason to have a, a reaction, positive or negative. I know you've you have already voiced some opinion about the absence of Homestead as the finale. So I'm 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 curious. M- make your case. Why why should it be the finale? I just I think that like if I've made a list of the biggest problems in NASCAR, having Homestead as the finale wouldn't make my top fifty. You know what I mean? So I just <laughs> I just think why the change? I feel like the races we've seen there in the last few years, they've been won by different drivers. They've been competitive. They've been good to the top four. Uh, most of the series is run on competitive mile and a half tracks, and this seemed like the best one that offers many lanes and opportunities at passing. I just didn't have any problem w- with Homestead being the finale, so making the switch, it wasn't on the top of my priority list, if you will. So that's the only reason I I, I was reluctant to see a change there. But maybe Phoenix will present itself. You know, I could be looking at it as whatever the final track is that determines the champion. That that's the one where four teams are going to rise no matter where the finale is. You know what I mean? And I think we've seen that at Homestead and maybe we can apply that to every track. I'm not against it. I like Phoenix as a track, but I just didn't see the need for a change at Homestead. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think your view is, is more rational than uh, the popular consensus for sure. I do think parity may be an issue. Um, Folks are worried that Phoenix has been dominated by maybe just two or three drivers in the past few years. Whereas uh, Homestead, at least the last three years, uh, was won by a driver that also won the championship that had never previously won at that facility. Um, I think things change. Uh, Joey Logano won Martinsville, and that was the first playoff race of the 
third round. I think I'm correct on that. But he had about three weeks to prepare for Homestead. He was never previously that good at Homestead, but he certainly looked as if he had three weeks worth of preparation when he got there. I still think we'll see that at Phoenix. And I also like the notion of it being a standalone turn. It only had Homestead had one race per year, and we couldn't look at something earlier in the season and kind of compare it to. Undoubtedly, we will be doing that when it comes to Phoenix in 2020. And I don't know. I, I just like the mystery aspect of it. Maybe that's just me. All right, next topic, uh, Jimmy Johnson, David. Jimmy Johnson, so not hot right now. It's Jimmy Johnson struggling. And Jim, the fact of Jimmy Johnson struggling, not new, but the fact that he did it at Martinsville, a track that he had won nine times the performance there was I hate to say well-earned but that was a well-earned 24th place finish two laps down at one point he got lapped three times on the racetrack you know we're not talking about penalties we're not talking about some mechanical issue or a crash or anything he was just slow on speed and the lowest finishing Hendrick car at Martinsville something I I never thought I would say this has been, we know it's been a struggle lately for Jimmy Johnson, but this just seemed more eye-opening than others, David. So where do you even want to start here when we're putting this into perspective? Where, where do we start? Well, I mean, I'm just curious because is this is this a pressure point for you? I know you're not as close to the numbers as I am. So what is it specifically about Jimmy Johnson that prompts you to ask this question now? Was it strictly the Martinsville performance or... Do you feel this is just a, a, the culmination of something that has been brewing for a while? Yeah, a mixture of both those things. I, I mean, we, we've known that the performance hasn't been there uh, for a while. But when you go to Martinsville, the prevailing thought is that at least it'll be somewhat equal. Uh, you won't have the arrow issues that, that teams take advantage of at other tracks and may hinder Hendrick in other places. It'll be somewhat equal, and we'll see the uh, the talent and the past performance come out and still be there at Martinsville. And we don't, we didn't see it. We did not from Jimmy Johnson. And I think it, maybe David, it leads to a larger discussion about how we look at drivers sometimes. Uh, when, when I think about an, an aging athlete, like say Usain Bolt, how fast he is, when he starts slowing down, we will see it. We will see it on the stopwatch. Randy Johnson throwing a fastball, when he starts throwing slower pitches, we will see it on the stop, on the radar gun. Uh, in racing, we don't see that as much or we don't apply that as much for some reason. We, we see, I'm speaking for myself here, but I think I speak for a lot of people, honestly, that it seems like we, we are blind to it. The notion that someone getting older or th- that their skills could diminish, you know, you'll always hear, oh, Jimmy Johnson didn't forget how to drive a race car, right? Because you, yeah. you, you can't think of it but, like but, that. But his, but his eyes may have failed to perceive depth perception. The norm in this situation is after the age 39 peak season, decline begins, and the swiftness of the decline depends on the driver. We probably won't know why Jimmy Johnson isn't as good right now as he was 10 years ago, but it it is heading in that direction. I mentioned a few episodes back, with the benefit of hindsight, it was clear that the dip in Tony Stewart's pass efficiency on the 1.5-mile tracks signaled the beginning of the end for his production ability in the NASCAR Cup Series. Similarly, Johnson's passing numbers at this point in the season have seen a deep drop from last year's effort. Last year, he scored a plus 2.18% surplus value across all measurable track types, and that was the third highest surplus among front runners. So even in his struggles last year, he was still getting track position. It just wasn't much, and we weren't seeing the results of it. This year, though, 
is much different. He's turned in a negative surplus in each race since Daytona. He's at a minus 5.24% value, which ranks dead last among all drivers. In terms of adjusted pass differential, those betting or setting uh, the daily fantasy lineups that score total passes are probably already familiar with this, but Johnson has yet to break even in a single race. And there's no sugarcoating it. That's not good at all. Uh, my regression analysis ranked Johnson 39th out of 40 drivers in preseason peer projections, forecasting a negative peer, which I admit sounds pretty ambitious until you consider that Terry Labonte, Dale Jarrett, Bobby Labonte on three occasions, and Tony Stewart, all champions and would-be Hall of Famers, all had seasons late in their careers in which they turned in negative year-long production. This is this is kind of a rite of passage for, for Johnson. Now, it's not, all of this isn't entirely Johnson's fault. The number 48 team ranks 16th in central speed. Outside of Chase Elliott, Hendrick Motorsports has cars ranked 15th, 16th, and 17th in that ranking. They're right on top of one another, which might mean it's a fair assessment of their program. But because Jimmy's passing numbers are on the downswing, and that's potentially a sign of his permanent decline, he strikes me as someone unable to rise above his equipment. Uh, Alan, given the state of where they are right now, given that we're even having this discussion, that is a problem. And it just strikes me, I always mention the head and the heart, right? I mean, we have you to, to explain things and kind of without, without, take the emotion out of it, right? Because I think of, if I just saw the stats of 43 year old driver X, would I, would I expect this performance? And then I add the name Jimmy Johnson and I go, no way, no way. He's seven time champion. He's won 80 plus races. It can't be Jimmy Johnson's fault. You know what I mean? And I, I have a, I have a hard time reconciling that, David. I, I don't, it just, I think a lot of us are like that sometimes. It's his elite past is clouding his future. But uh, look, all these guys, all these guys are going to fade uh, regardless of how good they were 10 years ago. And Johnson is experiencing that right now. I actually think his team might be completely aware of what is going on. I wrote about this last fall for motorsportsanalytics.com. Since the implementation of stages, Xfinity and truck crew chiefs are near impossible to evaluate on the surface when it comes to their pit strategy efforts. However, I'll note that there wasn't anything revelatory and Kevin Mindering's visible strategy output or his car's central speed last year that would suggest he's a game-changing hire for Johnson. Uh, he's actually a bit older than the normal rookie crew chief nowadays. He's almost 40. That doesn't necessarily matter, but his profile to me suggests he's a caretaker crew chief. Everything about uh, his 2018 Xfinity Series season with Elliott Sadler felt a little bit like, okay, Sadler is here. It's his last year. Let's make sure the car gets to the track every weekend and that the wheels don't fall off. I I have a sneaking suspicion that that might actually be his role this year for Jimmy Johnson. I doubt anyone at Hendrick truly thinks they or Mendering can rescue him from certain decline at this point. Johnson's been showing this for the last few years. His production has dipped and now we're understanding why. I think Mendering is just there to keep things rolling along. I, I think the, from from this point forward, the, the 48 car, at least when Johnson is in it, uh, is just another car in the field. 
I made the comparison before. You know, we trust the we we trust the radar gun when we see it, right? If Randy Johnson start suddenly not throwing as fast anymore, or we'll trust the stopwatch when Usain Bolt finally slows down. Should we trust the stopwatch or the results when we see Jimmy Johnson this year? I think so. I think most uh, fans watching at home can easily use Chase Elliott as a a barometer for what Hendrick is able to accomplish. Um, The cars are going to be different. It's four different teams and four different crew chiefs. So they're not trotting out four identically prepared cars as much as just general fans of Hendrick would like to think. But at the same time, that's a that's a that's a good benchmark to have for Johnson. If he can't compete with a guy nearly twenty years his junior, that might be it. That that might be the 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 point where you say this is this is kind of the end. I we've certainly seen his best, but there are plenty of Johnson fans still holding out hope that he can make at least one last run or just have a have a surge where he's able to contend for wins, and we haven't even seen that. Interesting times over at Hendrick Motorsports. Well, from the bad at Martinsville to the good, let's talk a little Brad Keselowski. Certainly riding high, dominating win in Martinsville, more than 400 laps led. Those are Rusty Wallace numbers, David. Um, that was the second win of the year for Brad Keselowski, 29th of his career for the 35-year-old. Uh, certainly a lot of talk about Kyle Busch and all the winning he does, but over the last few years, it seems like a natural rival to Kyle is Brad Keselowski. What, what stands out about Brad's talent and his ability out there on the track? I know we've talked about him before just a few weeks ago. One of those drivers who seemingly can adapt to anything, no real weaknesses. It seems, uh, at every track you go to, you, I don't think you'd be surprised if Brad Keselowski were to win. What stands out about Brad's talent? I think you I think you hit on it. I, th- I think it's his malleability. If we think back, he was he was a winner at Kentucky Speedway both before and after it was repaved. He was a winner at Las Vegas in both cool and hot temperatures. He was a winner at Talladega in the tandem drafting era and under more modern drafting rules packages. And he was the first to win using the 2019 rules package, a package by the way against which he's been outspoken while simultaneously being proactive about uh, for instance, hiring Coleman Presley, the spotter that helped A.G. Allmendinger to a win last year in the All-Star preliminary race with similar rule settings, contained some foresight. It reminds me of Daryl Waldrip and Bristol a little bit. Uh, Daryl Waldrip had an anecdote in his uh, book co-written by Jade Gers about his early races at Bristol and the fact that he made a conscious decision to mentally will himself into liking Bristol during a time that Bristol was a notoriously difficult racetrack and one that not a lot of drivers liked. Him choosing to like it allowed him to make a point for improving his performance there. What Brad says in the press about different rules packages and changes is reactive, but make no mistake, the things he does behind the scenes are proactive. This is a case of adaptability being an ability. He might have some weaknesses, but he isn't against shoring up those weaknesses or figuring out workarounds uh, to eliminate them. Brad Keselowski is certainly adaptable. I think that would be my pick for for what makes him stand out uh, as a singular talent. 
and championship favorite seemingly every year. Uh, I, we're coming up actually on his uh, 10th anniversary of that first Talladega win. And looking back on it, I mean, first of all, it was memorable because Carl Edwards ends up in the fence. Uh, Brad Keselowski's in a partial part-time ride in that 09 Finch car. And it, that win just seems so, you know, blue collar or small time, small team sort of deal. And I feel like that attitude has never left Brad Keselowski. You know what I mean? Like he, he brings that on in that old family. I don't know. You would expect his hands to always be dirty working on a race car sort of like that. And I feel like that, that initial impression of him has never left. And I think that's what fans can appreciate about him. Uh, another thing, David, you know, we think of other teams like Stuart Haas or Joe Gibbs Racing you know, big multi-car teams that seem to have their alpha dog and in, in Kevin Harvick and Kyle Busch. I feel like Penske doesn't have that, that alpha dog syndrome. And I don't know. I think that benefits them as a team. You don't think Brad Kozlowski is the alpha dog at, at Penske? Uh, I don't see how you could put him over Joey Logano. They seem equal. That's what I'm trying to say is that at least Brad and well, Joey I, seem I, equal to me. So, so when you say that, I'm thinking of just seniority. He was the first of the the three drivers currently there that were there. And when he came over to Penske, he was essentially under the Hendrick banner uh, while competing at junior motorsports. And I, I think he, I, he might've said this publicly. I, I believe so. He said it in, a, in, a, in an article somewhere that Penske needed to hire like something like 200 more people in order to compete with Hendrick. And internally at Penske, that was a pretty big blow. Uh, they didn't take it well, but at the same time, they heeded his advice and and pivoted. I don't know that they hired 200 people, but they certainly enhanced their their manpower. That was the impetus for hiring Paul Wolf. And you could argue that Brad Keselowski was the tipping point for the modern day Penske relevance that we're currently seeing. I mean, his team his team isn't slow there. He, he, his team ranks third right now in central speed, though they rank fourth on non-drafting tracks, 1.5 miles or larger. And for a driver as malleable as Keselowski, that may be enough firepower. I wrote last week for motorsports analytics, how Joey Logano's team speed has been fits and starts over the last two years. And right now Penske as a whole is having a moment that kind of sustainability probably wouldn't exist if you didn't have someone behind the scenes shaking trees like Keselowski did in his early days there. And and maybe Logano with a championship now has the pedigree where he can make similar calls. But considering the significance of that hire, I, I think quietly Keselowski, at least behind the scenes, is the is the alpha at Penske. Maybe they don't um, they don't try it out one team that's an alpha, but to me, Kozlowski is the clear team leader. All right. Well, he's they they don't. It's not it's not a detriment, I guess is is what I is what I'm saying. I could see them putting two cars in the uh, in the final four when it comes to Homestead this year, and I uh, I think it's part of why uh, Penske succeeds. But look, and, let's, and on that and on that on that front, uh, on, when when you mentioned the final four. Keselowski currently ranks second right now in peer, um, which does make sense. My peer projection uh, regression analysis ranked him third heading into this season. In fact, he was the only driver not in last year's championship four to rank inside this year's forecasted top four. I know we're going to talk a little bit more about him when we get to Texas, but he currently holds a negative passing value for the season. However, in the two instances in which he earned a surplus passing value greater than 1%, he won Atlanta and Martinsville. So when he passes cars efficiently, 
he wins races. Fancy that. And in our preseason predictions, I said that he'd double his win total from last year uh, from three to six. So far, he's on a steady track for that. I want to get a prediction out of you. Uh Uh-oh. Based on what you've seen, how do you see his season playing out? I think Brad's season keeps going in the trajectory that it is now. He's already got two wins. I think he ends up with six wins on the season, therefore making your prediction correct. But uh, look, it's just early in the season. He's got two wins, as we keep saying, how malleable he is, how he can adapt to any track. And I think other teams may catch up. We'll talk about that when we talk about Texas here in a second. But I don't see why Brad Kozlowski can't keep on winning. Penske has seemingly out of the gate something of an advantage, something have they've figured out this 2019 aero package, whether it be the aero, the engine, what have you. Uh, I don't see why he cannot keep winning. Why not? No, neither do I. And, and I think it speaks to the the fact that Keselowski is seemingly a, a jack of most trades. That's valuable. And it seems if he can get, he's already in the playoffs, so he can get a, a run going in the playoffs similar to what we're seeing right now as dominant as we've seen Kyle Busch be at times, Keselowski can be just as good or get just as good of results without being a clear, visible uh, front runner all the time. And like I said, 29 career wins now for Brad Keselowski. Surprisingly, this surprised me anyway, none of them have come at Texas Motor Speedway, where we are going this weekend, where the Cup Series heads to, all three series actually this weekend. Uh, but for, in terms of the Cup race, David, I, I do think it will be the most important race of the season so far, or at least the most telling. And I say that only because ever since we left Atlanta, uh, and got out to the West Coast, we started hearing the talk in the garage, interview sound bites from Kevin Harvick about teams like Stuart Haas Racing that, that missed the mark early in the season, right? They weren't competing for those wins. They weren't leading the laps. And many of them said, because of the West Coast swing, if you didn't hit it right away, teams had to wait until they were all the way back on the East Coast to start fixing their race cars. Well, now we've had a few weeks. Teams are back. They have the data from the early seat part of the season. The West Coast swing, I can tell you, uh, just anecdotally hearing about teams cutting up their race cars and fixing things, learning things from other teams and pictures and video and data and what have you. But look, they're bringing their brand new bullets to Texas. And I think it will be very telling about how much progress a team like SHR or any team <laughs> that's frankly not Penske or Joe Gibbs Racing, the progress that a team has made since those early races in the season. And if you don't have performance this weekend, I'm going to start wondering what's up with some of these race teams, David. I love that there's teams cutting up race cars and then just <laughs> telling media that, oh, no, no, we're not panicking. Really? Really, dude? You're, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's, uh, that's the exact definition of panic. But I agree with you in that this isn't the last chance for a program to look good in 2019, but it does tell whether some of these teams can make an adjustment after seeing the initial returns of a new rules package. All of these packages favor the early adopters. And to some degree, that's a guessing game for some of these engineers, but there are points in a season where teams have to adjust on the fly and they either can or they can't. Look, I mean, there's only so much I can look at or predict or point to what's wrong, but we, 
fifth place, we've talked about the curse of the standard, right? Fifth place, third place is not good enough for a team like the four team and Kevin Harvick, especially when they have speed and just don't seem to be able to close races out. So what what I expect out of a team like Kevin Harvick and Rodney Childers or, or really any of the Stuart Haas cars after last year is leading laps and getting victories, being a contender. Early part of the season, I can't say that they have been. We have, we've seen them yeah, fourth, fifth, what have you. Kevin Harvick might have a better finish than that, but I don't think at any point during any race are you looking at, at Kevin Harvick leading a hundred straight laps, at least not yet. So they got to go and find the speed somewhere. And, uh, even, and I think we looked at central speed earlier in the year and, and the four team had it, but they didn't have the finishes. I, I think they need to start getting the finishes commiserate with their, their, how fast their race cars are. Okay, so so let's talk about speed. When we detail races, we want to see what these races reward. What what do the winners typically do? Texas races typically reward speed. Dating back to 2005, which is the inception of loop data, the fastest car in a given NASCAR Cup Series race won 40% of the time. During that same span at Texas Motor Speedway, the fastest car won 63% of the time. That's 18 times in 28 races. This track definitely rewards the fastest cars. That's good news for Joey Logano, who enters this weekend's race with the fastest car this season on non-drafting tracks 1.5 miles or larger. He has the third best odds for Sunday's race, according to sportsbook.com at 11 to 2, but based on this quantifiable speed until cars are on the track for practice this weekend, he strikes me as the clear favorite. Uh, one driver, and you brought this to my attention uh, off the air, Kurt Busch might be someone we need to keep an eye on. 30 to 1 odds to win this weekend, but much faster on big tracks than he's uh, been given credit. He ranks 12th overall in central speed but sixths on tracks 1.5 miles or larger. For Chip Ganassi Racing, this is similar to Kyle Larson's 2018 season when he ranked 13th on short tracks, but third on moderate intermediates. This organization has apparently chosen to focus on the larger tracks, which does make sense. Uh, they are the most prevalent, um, and this is a, a route you can take when maybe you don't have as deep a resources as a Stuart Haas, a Penske, or a Joe Gibbs racing. Is there any obvious choice that you're uh, keeping mind to? Well, the Kyle Busch factor, right? We can't talk about a race preview, at least consider Kyle Busch and what he may do or could do in terms of uh, speed and or restart ability. I mean, how, how much will restarts play into this race in terms of, look, they're always necessary, right? I mean, they're always important and necessary, but if you don't have the fastest car, can this race be won uh, on a restart? They are on the whole more volatile this year. Uh, preferred groove position retention is down by 13 percentage points from last year. So there are less guarantees in general for those bestowed a preferred groove assignment. Additionally, restarts at Texas were already elusive. In last year's spring race, the inside groove was the preferred with its occupants retaining 82% of the time. In the fall race, though, it was a mixture. Uh, through the first three rows, the outside was dominant, retaining 77% of the time to the inside's 48%. Um, but past uh, the first three rows, that dynamic flipped. 
because of this volatility, uh, both in Texas and this year in general, track position is going to be coveted from the get-go. Uh, no shock there. Uh, with a half-second falloff in lap times on old tires, I would expect long pitting to be in play for potential leaps up the running order during green flag pit cycles. If you're a crew chief atop a Cup Series pit box this weekend in Texas, go ahead and assume restarts won't go to your liking. <laughs> Get that track position prior to the restart and let the chips fall as they may because restarts might be a mess. Keep in mind, there, the, the NASCAR is going to put down that PJ1 concoction um, on spots that have been paved over. The belief is that they are trying to manipulate the racing product into a pack. I'm not sure that's what's going to happen, but those kind of questions make for typically very volatile restarts, and I don't see that changing at Texas. I know you always like to put out the restart numbers and analyze who the good restarters are or who has that ability on motorsportsanalytics.com. Uh, any early contenders? Can, can we make a case for anybody early on in this season who, who's – I don't know, having efficient restarts and retaining their position, if not gaining positions on restarts? I think so. Uh, most efficient, and, and we've already talked about him, Brad Keselowski. 87% retention from the preferred groove, 70% retention from the non-preferred groove, uh, and showed about as well as one can last weekend at Martinsville, bucking the trend that we talked about with uh, about restarts from the inside line. Most important, though, in his win in Atlanta, he had perfect retention across five restarts and picked up 12 spots as a result. Same in Las Vegas, uh, the other 1.5-mile track we've seen this year, though that was a three-position gain on two restart attempts from inside the first seven rows. Uh, also efficient and somebody that I think we're sleeping on. They've been fast to this point in the year, somewhat of a surprise, but Eric Almarola stringing together a nice early part of the season on restarts. Preferred groove retention across six attempts in Phoenix was perfect. Uh, currently for the season, 79% retention rate from the preferred groove, 60% from the non-preferred. Martinsville was a little bit of a challenge for him, but he returns to a track that has the new rules package that is allowing him to flourish this year. Um, so that's certainly something to watch. And of course, I want to talk about a restarter that has me scratching my head, Chase Elliott on the big tracks, Atlanta, Las Vegas, and Fontana, he's suffered a 27 position net loss on restarts. He's having a tough time getting a result in races with this new rules package. Uh, however, Alan, uh, to, this will put a smile on your face. Crew chief Alan Gustafson is doing work on his behalf. 64 positions gained this year on green flag pit cycles. That's the most in the series. 20 of those uh, coming since Daytona, and unfortunately, all of them counting towards Team Cavana, <laughs> Team Cavana after our crew chief draft. Alan, if you end up winning this thing, you might want to toast one to Alan Gustafson. So far, he's the uh, he's the crew chief MVP. Sixty four is a lot for early in the season, right? I mean, yes, that, that, that's a, that's a yeah, huge number. What was that aided by? Forty four at Daytona, and that <sighs> that was keeping keep in mind. We talked about how weird of a race Chase Elliott had at Daytona. Three crashes in the red zone after just having one in all of 2018 that nine team was so good in that race and it just never manifested into a lead or anything tangible for his fans to grasp onto i would argue that was a better more complete race for the nine team than even his second place finish in martinsville 
but the 2019 rules package uh, decidedly not in Chase Elliott's favor. And I, I'm, I'm a little bit puzzled by that. I figured he would be one that uh, is young enough, willing enough, malleable enough to, to make that adjustment. But so far, Hendrick is a program is down. Chase is, is faring better than his, uh, uh, than his three stable mates, but he's at a point where the restarts have been bad. His passing has been spotty. He's just trying to get a result that he can be proud of um, on one of these bigger tracks. Is it safe to say, so if Alan Gustafson is doing his job well and, and Chase Elliott is, is struggling on restarts, is it safe to say a longer green flag race uh, benefits Chase Elliott more in, in the long run? Yeah, it certainly would, and it did last year. Um, remember, he had a massive differential in his average finish in races uh, low on restarts versus races high on restarts. And you're going to see the same dynamic if this continues. Um, Texas is a 500-mile race. Might be a little bit too long for uh, for Texas, but it's 500 miles this weekend, so they're they're going to have to come to grips with that. That's a long race. And that at some point, there are going to be green flag stretches that can allow him to, to regroup. The problem, though, is what happens if this is pack racing that we see this weekend? How does he adjust to that? Because right now, Hendrick has not adjusted well to this package it's benefiting the the bigger smarter teams that were quick to figure this out and that doesn't help chase elliott's case at all he's off to a sluggish start and it's difficult to see where his season might turn around yeah a, a green flag run on a track that has a new rules package may not offer the same reward that it did to him at this point last year and David, you'd be proud of me because now when I watch races, when it comes for a green flag pit cycle, I try to make at least mental notes of where one goes in, in their running position and where they come out and, and when they uh, pit all because of, of the, the talks we have about pit cycles and gaining positions. And even on restarts, I'm trying to mentally take notes about where someone starts, what line, and if two laps later they have retained their position and or gained or lost. So you have changed the way I watch races and I hope. Uh, what, what are these, what are these mental notes of which you Speak. You've been just been texting me like they're short pitting like that. You're you're really excited now. Even when Chad Canales was doing some uh, some weird stuff a couple of races ago, you're you're quick to say like, oh, Chad Canales is doing things. Oh uh, yeah, but um, I just meant no, I'm not I, writing I, it down. I'm not, I'm not writing down position by position, but I am thinking, oh, right, he went in seventh. Let's see where he comes out. Or he's third on the outside on this restart after two laps. Let's see what position he's still in. And I'm thinking that way. So it has changed the way I, I've watched races, and I hope other listeners uh, can appreciate some of that too and it has to have some effect with the way we uh look at things now david so i appreciate that i think so i think there are there are so many fascinating decisions happening on pit road that just for whatever reason may go uncovered so uh keep you know keep watch keep That's track what i'll be doing this week what is happening uh, during green flag pit cycles what is happening on pit road what kind of decisions are being made because ultimately those are deciding finishing positions. Uh, you're just not seeing it in the moment. Yeah, and I can't wait to see how the 500-mile the race in Texas plays out this weekend. And don't forget, everyone, we are available on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and Podbean. We have all your favorite devices covered. If you like what you're hearing, 
leave us a rating or a review. That helps this podcast gain some visibility and just tell your friends. We appreciate all the love we get on Twitter and all the feedback, and it's really been helpful. So you're helping spreading the word. It's just so appreciated. If you have any questions, send them to us. We love answering your questions because the questions we get are smart, intelligent. They help us dig deep and think of new ideas. Send them. We reach out on Twitter at posregpod, P-O-S-R-E-G-P-O-D. And, and David, what are you working on for uh, Motorsports Analytics, the website? Well, on the question front, I think I am going to send out the bat signal uh, next week and, and may even dangle a prize uh, for, for, for best, most insightful question for, for upcoming episodes. But uh, on motorsportsanalytics.com prior to the racing action at Texas, the first batch of production and equal equipment ratings for the NASCAR Cup Series in 2019 will be posted exclusive, of course, to subscribers of motorsportsanalytics.com. I'll also be writing about peer and drivers underachieving and overachieving over the course of the next two weeks. So be on the lookout. Looking forward to that. And if you are listening to this on Thursday morning when it posts, first of all, thank you very much. You are all set for the weekend. But make sure you watch Race Up Thursday night. I went to Stuart Haas Racing and visited with Daniel Suarez, fresh off one of his best runs of the year at Martinsville. And he is one of those drivers and teams. They are looking toward Texas because they know they have to improve, and that has led to uh, certainly some serious discussion in their competition meetings. And that's usually when I, right after those meetings, is when I catch up with drivers, usually midweek for Race Hub on FS1. So watch out for that interview. I'll make sure to post it on Twitter if you indeed miss it. And I'm also heading to Texas because, of course, the truck series is there. It is a triple header. Watch Fox FS1 all weekend and watch me on Pit Road on Friday night. Truck series has been good this year. Uh, David, I think it's the field against Kyle Bush. Who are you betting on Friday night? Kyle Bush. All right, Kyle Bush. We'll see what happens on Friday night. Make sure you watch that on FS1. David, fun talk as always. Thank you, everybody, for listening to Positive Regression, a motorsports analytics podcast. For David Smith, I'm Alan Kavana. Make sure you stay positive and join us next week. Rose Davis, historian and co-host of the sports podcast, Burn It All Down. And now I'm hosting the new season of American Prodigy, all about black girls in gymnastics. For the last 40 years, black gymnasts have moved from the margins to the core of the sport and changed gymnastics along the way. Now they tell their stories. You'll meet trailblazers like Diane Durham, superstars like Jordan Childs, and everyone in between. Listen to American Prodigies on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.